This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, we are joined by presidential historian and prolific Reagan biographer Craig Shirley. Craig Shirley is the author of the new book, April 1945, The Hinge of History, which tells the story of the American victory at the end of the Second World War. Craig Shirley, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. Thank you very much. Well, it's great to have you back on the show. You may recall you were our first guest when we kicked off Reaganism. I remember that. Yeah, I, over I a, now, I, over 100 episodes ago. So uh, we've continued at it, and it, <laughs> uh, and you have as well. Congratulations on your uh, newest book, April 1945, The Hinge of History. Uh, you can get this on Amazon. Um, you're known to the world of Reaganism for your biographies on Ronald Reagan, but... You've also uh, done other works uh, and a a historian looking at a variety of of, of personalities and moments in history. The April 1945 book is like a companion, companion, perhaps a a bookend to uh, the 1941 book. Tell us about that. Well, uh, I decided to write that, you know, uh, December 1941. Uh, it, it really goes back to my childhood, Roger, uh, and you probably had the same childhood. I remember every Sunday after church, we would go over to my grandmother's house, my grandfather's house, and we'd have a big uh, Sunday dinner, you know, turkey or roast beef or uh, something like that, um, goose or something. And I remember sitting around the table, I was a little, just a little guy, and I'd have aunts and uncles and grandparents and parents and invariably the conversation always turned to the war. As in my grandfather would say, well, I bought that Hudson before the war, but I didn't sell it till after the war. Uh, and then they would talk about, you know, making, uh, you know, uh, getting oleo butter and mixing up the chem dye in it to, to make it look more palatable yellow than the sickly white it looked like uh, that you got. Because all the butter was being sent to American servicemen, British, soldiers and, and Soviet uh, soldiers. Um, and they talk about rations and they talk about ga- gas stamps. And they both my grandmothers were Rosie the Riveters. One was a machine gun inspector. She used to stand there as a machine gun came down the conveyor belt, pick it up, fire it, rat, tat, 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 and then set it down. And the next one would come down the conveyor belt, she'd pick it up, fire it. The other grandmother, my other grandmother, was a bomb inspector, which I never got a chance to really uh, ask her what a bomb inspector did. I hope it wasn't too too dangerous. <laughs> um, my my mother, one time I, I said to her, I said to her um, that I thought Victory Gardens, this was years ago, were kind of a PR ploy by the Roosevelt administration. She got indignant. She said, you know, I had a Victory Garden in our backyard. She was just a little kid. She was uh, born in 1932, so she was you know, 11 years old to be at the beginning of the war. Uh, um, and uh, she had a victory garden. All of her neighbors had victory gardens. And then I did a little research and found out there were victory gardens all across America on on, ten, on tenements, on top of tenements, in small family farms, in American backyards. And as a matter of fact, in 1944, something like one quarter of all vegetables grown in America were grown in victory gardens. So this is all from your childhood. You, you're absorbing this and you're thinking back. Yes. And so that's how yes. you got to 19 December, your, your first book, 
of this, which now I guess a series, yeah. December 1941. Which was the, uh, the entry into the war. So then I started doing uh, some more research and I found out all the things that happened in April 1945. FDR dies, uh, Hitler commits suicide, Mussolini's taken down by the by the mob, uh, Auschwitz is discovered, Buchenwald is discovered, um, and along with their their horrors, uh, the, the uh, Okinawa is raging as the final staging island for the final invasion of the mainland of Japan, MacArthur's forces. And there's just every day is a red letter day. Every day is a big block letter newspaper yeah. day. So, hence April 1945. So, so, but the perspective in which you approach this uh, for the April 1945 book, which you call the hinge of history, right? This is right. almost you have the war from 1941 till 1945, but right. the this month is really seminal. You're giving it from the perspective of the American people almost experiencing the war. Tell us about that. As I'm reading through this book, Craig, it's like, okay, if I'm opening up the newspaper over the course of January 1945 or March 1945, here's a variety of things you're going to read about from the European right. theater to the sure. Pacific theater to what's going on socially, uh, you know, whether it's in D.C., New York, or another metropolis. I, I went through uh, FDR's uh, library material, Truman's library material, uh, Eisenhower's library material, um, the, uh, the, the Library of Congress material, uh, books like uh, Friends Patton's Diary. Uh, David Brinkley wrote a wonderful book, which I used as a source too, called Washington Goes to War. Uh, and that was also used as a source material. I used about 300 books of source material and a number of uh, magazines and newspapers, Life Magazine, uh, uh, Look Magazine, uh, Saturday Evening Post, Harper's Bazaar. And uh, so that's how I was able to construct, really construct the story, just every, everything going together. And I wanted to do it, you know, let me just say this one thing, Roger, is that most historians write from uh, 30,000 feet. Uh, and they they write in a academic sense and let us now examine the conditions under which propelled the United States into the conflict with, <laughs> in Europe. You know, I don't write like that. I write I, I'm right at a very ground level. I try to write and, and put through the eyes and ears of people as they were going through uh, April of 1945. I try to make it as gritty and real as possible. I think that definitely comes across, Craig. and and. Tell us more about the mindset of that average American in February, oh, March, or April 1945. I mean, here's a couple maybe you want to hit on, right? They, they, they're seeing Patton's armies, Third Army advance through yeah. Europe. In the book, you know, you're, you, you really kind of give the feeling that they don't quite know how much momentum, you know, they're realizing, but they seem to be advancing. You have you know, uh, enemies, both Germany, but it's, and, and Japan as well, that comes out that are just not giving up. They're entrenched. Yes. And you have, um, you know, this emergence of some sort of post-war conversation, right? So at the same time that we have servicemen fighting, the statesmen of the day, and, and you focus rightfully on FDR, you know, they're getting ready for Yalta and they're 
um, trying to figure out what the post-war construct is. Did I get that right? And tell me more kind of about what the experience was for the American living through all this in those critical months and ultimately in April 1945. It is, uh, the, there's only, Roger, there's only two times in the history, the 250-year history of America, where we have been completely unified was during World War II and in the, in the in a couple of weeks and months after September 11th. We've never been unified as a country. We, we were unified in the American Revolution. We weren't uni- certainly weren't unified in the Civil War. That was about our very divisions, is that uh, 30-some members of Congress, 37 members of Congress voted against our entry into World War II or World War I. Uh, it, uh, it, we were obviously united, divided over the Vietnam War, we were divided over the civil rights movement, we are divided over so many issues. We've always been divided. It is the only time we were united was d- during World War II, and that quickly ended after, after the war, uh, and then after uh, the afternoon and the weeks after se- September 11th, and that, that unity uh, dissipated as well. Uh, I guess maybe the strength of the United States is our ability to compromise between two uh, uh, various two uh, different positions. You know, the Missouri Compromise or whatever else. I want to get to uh, FDR as a figure who was able to either drive that unity or leverage the unity to advance some war goals. Um, But before we do the, the the piece that kind of got my attention. Uh, certainly the earlier part of this book, April 1945, The Hinge of History, is tr- you know, the, the recognition that we were seeking unconditional surrender. Yes. And that had to have been, in, you know, in hindsight, that's almost something, well, I know I do, think of it as a matter of course. But really in your book, it seems to be something that perhaps wasn't taken as a matter of course and really required deft political work on the part of FDR. No doubt yes. the Nazis uh, and the Japanese did a lot to convince the Americans that unconditional surrender would be the only way to get out of the conflict. But talk about unconditional surrender as kind of a thread in this story of American unity that you've, you've just shared. There was, a, there was a debate, Roger, in early 1945. We knew we were winning the war. We knew the war was coming to a, a successful conclusion. The question now was, was that, do we prosecute the war at, right to, into Berlin and utterly destroy Germany, Adolf Hitler, Goebbels, the, the German, the, the uh, Nazi infrastructure, everything, or do we go for a negotiated surrender? Uh, There was some debate, uh, but FDR was insistent on unconditional surrender. Uh, Winston Churchill was insistent on unconditional surrender, and so was Stalin. It was one of the few times the big three actually agreed on something. Uh, And the American people seemed to tilt toward, look, we've won four years of war now, so let's just go for for unconditional surrender instead of negotiated surrender. Uh, Unconditional. uh, we, We just wanted to obliterate them, defeat them, and why not? After how the Nazis had behaved, and after uh, after the things they did, the millions, twenty million people uh, died uh, at the hands of uh, the the Nazis. I mean, uh, and that's part of the story, Craig. As this very important political consideration is being debated, and you mentioned that the big three—Churchill, Stalin, of course, FDR—agreed that the objective here was unconditional surrender. 
as we're moving through Europe, we're seeing the atrocities oh, yes. of the Nazis. And you write about that. You write about how Americans were discovering, GIs were discovering, and then the news was coming back to the United States about genocide against the Jews and the Holocaust and just the brutality of the Nazi regime. Tell us about how the American, you know, in the Midwest experienced that news and how it impacted their view politically of outcomes. Well, uh, you know, it's a complicated question because, uh, because uh, the Washington Post and the New York Times reported on the death camps, but they didn't report initially there was, it was Jews were being killed systematically by uh, Nazi Germany. They just simply reported that people were dying in these death camps. Is that almost like they, they either wanted to cover it up or they're embarrassed or they didn't identify them, uh, the, the victims uh, racially. Whatever reason, they, 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 both newspapers did not, uh, but, but other uh, news organizations did. Uh, uh, Time Magazine did, news, not Newsweek, but Time Magazine, uh, Life uh, did report that it was Jews who were being killed and that it was, it was six million Jews who had died at the hands of uh, Nazi Germany. Uh, I think most people were in disbelief. You know, Hitler once said, you know, the bigger the lie, the more you get away with it. It, it, it was so big. It was so massive. It was so, it so it just couldn't believe that they would systematically kill, you know, 10 million people, 6 million Jews, and then another 4 million, uh, you know, uh, handicapped, uh, homosexuals, uh, uh, you know, alcoholics, uh, uh, you know, uh, Polish workers, Russian workers, they would, they would kill so many people. Just and of course, this is all coming in, in this period of time. I mean, you, you yes. know, you had perhaps, you know, little bits of reporting in the year prior or years prior, yes. but it was yes. my sense of your book, 1945 is when the world and the, and Americans really came to internalize and realize what had transpired. And the U.S. military, of course, the reason why was actually marching through Germany and, and seeing these, these camps and our, our, the general officers yes. would make, yes. as you write, the, the locals, the, the local and, uh, communities, you know, to see what, what was happening, you know, uh, near their homes. Yes, they knew it. The, the, the German people knew it. The, the Manhattan Institute reported, did report as early as 1941 on the systematic disappearance of Jews from Germany, how they were just, you know, doctors and dentists and other professionals were disappearing from, from Berlin and uh, Nuremberg and from other German cities, and how they were just, just disappearing in the dark of the night. Uh, you can't tell me that uh, the neighbors, you know, didn't wake up in the morning and notice that, you know, the neighbors, uh, they're Jewish uh, next door neighbor was was gone. Was gone in the middle of the night. The German people knew. The German, German people knew all about it. They knew what was going on. Uh, you cannot you cannot exterminate six million people or load them into boxcars and set boxcars on fire or load them into houses and set houses on fire uh, or or have these uh, these awful. And by the way, too, you know, uh, before I got into this. Um, Roger, I, you know, I, I knew about Buchenwald, I knew about Auschwitz, I knew about Treblinka, I knew about Dachau, I knew about major uh, Nazi death camps. 
But I didn't realize that the Nazis, uh, until I got into the research, the Nazis had dozens of death camps all over Europe, dozens of death camps in Paul, over Poland, uh, uh, over uh, over all, all the Hungary, all these countries. They all had, they all, there's probably two or three, four dozen different death camps. We only know about the major ones. Right. And so th this is, again, part of the story of 1945. But of course, what, what drives you to April 1945 is the death of, of the two arguably biggest players uh, in World War II out of Hitler and before that, FDR. Craig, in your mind, what was the most sig more significant death in terms of the end of, of the war? Was it? Yeah. yeah. Go ahead. It was, it was, no, it was FDR's uh, because of his importance to, on the world stage. He was, uh, in, in essence, during World War II, FDR was president of the world, not just of the United States. Is that he, he was conducting a two-front war. He was supplying uh, the British. He was supplying uh, the Soviets. He was supplying every all the allies were being supplied, in, in addition to American soldier himself, was being, were being supplied by the United States government. Uh, and we had a, a far-flung war extending all, thousands of miles all over, the, uh, all over the globe. And when he died, uh, flags in Moscow stood at, were at half-mast, were, were at half-staff. His, his death was broadcast over the radio for uh, three or four days. Constant, just constant uh, broadcasting of the, the, the movements of his death from the time he was loaded on the Ferdinand McGowan train in uh, the, the little White House in Hot Springs, Georgia, uh, to uh, up to his burial in uh, Hyde Park and his and his lying in state uh, in the in the White House. It was covered uh, continuously. My mother was like many children. Uh, when he died, she thought that America only had three presidents. We had George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, and, and Franklin Roosevelt. She'd no, only known one president her, her, from the time that she was born up until 1945, when she was 13 years old, 14 years old, and it was Franklin Roosevelt. Well, I, I encourage uh, our, our watchers and listeners to, to read this book, and particularly uh, Craig, the way you capture the reaction to FDR's death, you, you just give wonderful sweeping treatment of how the world uh, responded. In fact, you have this great line, the phrase, quote, world leader should have been invented for Franklin Roosevelt. And then uh, relevant, of course, to the Reagan Institute and, and more broadly our foundation, it's in this moment where you reference how a young Ronald Reagan, 21, had just graduated from Eureka College and you know, he was uh, the enthusiastic FDR Democrat. Um, he was. And, he voted for him four times. And it was his favorite phrase, rendezvous with destiny, was from FDR's 1936 convention speech. Which someone here wrote a book about, huh? Yes, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, yeah, it is remarkable uh, when you think about FDR's career. I mean, you know, he was president for... 4,423 days, <laughs> just yes. a shocking amount of time. Uh, yes. Even the healthiest, most, most fit young person in peaceful times could probably not withstand the strains of the office. No. And of course, 
he came in, as you know, as doctor of the economy, coming in with a new deal and trying to rescue the United States out of the Depression. And right. of course, has to pivot and build up the military and, and really has a vision. You, you, it's interesting, you capture this in April in your April 1945 book, but to capture the significance of his death, you go back to what he was doing in 1939 and 1940 and particularly the arsenal of democracy and, and what a huge undertaking that was. Give us a little more color on that. On uh, FDR himself? And what he had to do to get the country ready for the war, right? And, and, well, and, and the strain yeah, of all. Yeah, yeah, we were not ready for war. We had, in the 1930s, uh, a Democratic Congress and FDR uh, passed various neutrality acts and were signed into law by Franklin Roosevelt, uh, in, you know, including one law which prohibited U.S. troops from leaving North America. And those all had to be undone after December 7th, 1941, the Congress had to vote to undo the Neutrality Acts so that we could legally get into uh, the Pacific War and then the, uh, and then the uh, European War several days later. Uh, uh, so the way, I guess, he, he, I, I, the way, one of the ways was his morale speeches. He gave lots of speeches. He gave lots of fireside uh, talks. Uh, he did a lot of things to set an example. He had blackout curtains in the White House. The White House was became like an armed camp. Uh, there were there were machine gun nests on top of the the Lincoln Memorial. Is that is that we were we were ready for war? Washington was ready for war, and by 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 light token. America was getting ready for war. We did the same thing in Boston and New York. We had air raid shelters. We had, uh, you know, uh, air raid sirens and 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 uh, you know bombing uh, warnings and blackouts and brownouts and uh, rationing. And America's every you know it's interesting because uh, my uncle was uh, killed in World War II. Uh, and that was just, but he was one of 600,000 U.S. servicemen who died in World War II. Is that, you know, many, many people sacrificed without making the ultimate sacrifice. They, there were rubber drives, there were scrap drives, there were metal drives. They, they rationed gasoline, they rationed food, meat, they rationed milk, they rationed butter. Uh, everybody did something. Everybody did their part for the, called the war effort, you know. It's sarcastic saying to each other, "Hey, there's a war on," you know. So uh, drives. I found out too. The national speed limit was 35 miles an hour. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> driving around Washington or Los Angeles? Or, or, well, or you know, the, the fuel shortages, right? You know, yeah. or maybe when you get, you know, we get to five dollars a gallon. Maybe it'll happen here too. Yes, that's right. Yeah, that's right. But you imagine driving around the wilds of Montana at 35 miles an hour. It'd take you, it'd take you weeks to get from one side of the state to the other. It is, it's just remarkable. I mean, as, as looking at this, the lens of 2022, and, and obviously there's the, the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion, yes. and, and we're thinking about how the country responds. And, of course, it's not analogous, uh, obviously, to... Pearl Harbor, but yeah, there's kind of rhyming with, with the Cold War. But the broader point is how the country gets its mindset and it can just shift on a dime. And, and sure. you know, you have FDR, the New Dealer now, calling for, you know, at once a two-ocean Navy and 50,000 airplanes. It's, it's 
you know, the constructs of today don't have to be the limitations or the constructs of tomorrow. And that really just kind of plays through in, in, in your treatment of FDR. It does, doesn't it? Uh, Craig, two generals make, uh, you know, appearances throughout this, this pivotal time in 1945. You have Patton and you have MacArthur. Yeah. And you're two great generals. And, and, and it's almost the way that you kind of weave the story together as Americans have their eyes on what's going on in Europe and then also in the Pacific. Families have children in both theaters. Both are, are, are great and difficult challenges. Uh, they hadn't been keeping pace, of course. We were, you're, it was really uh, Europe first, the continent first. But at this point in 1945, it's full bore on both fronts. Give us a little more about Patton and MacArthur. And, and my sense is from the book and the way you write and the sources you're using, they were really the generals that the yes. American people were reading about and yes. talking about and almost measuring the war through their re reporting of their exploits. Uh, they're probably two of the most colorful generals and two of the most successful generals. What Patton did with the Third Army, you know, the Germans always thought that Patton was the best general we had and that he would become the supreme commander, not Eisenhower. Uh, so they always feared him the most. And, of course, you know, what he did with his Third Army is that he never gave up ground, was always on offense, never on defense, never holding the same territory, never fighting for the same ter 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 territory twice. Uh, is that uh, he, he, he marched steadily uh, from from when his army came ashore in, in Normandy, he marched steadily, get, gaining t 10, 15, 20 miles a day toward Berlin, uh, never retreating, never backing up, never slowing down. And of course, it was a brilliant uh, uh, offensive maneuver against the Germans' last offense at Bastogne, uh, you know, the, the Battle of the Bulge and how he beat that battle of the bulge back and destroyed the Germans' last uh, offensive battle uh, before the final collapse of uh, Berlin and, and Adolf Hitler. And, and of course, MacArthur, let me just say one thing about MacArthur. I think MacArthur is probably my favorite general. What he did in, in island hopping up the uh, Asiatic Peninsula was brilliant, you know, cut, you know not going after their, uh, their hard spots, but going after their soft spots. And right. then his stewardship and what he did to rebuild Japan, he should have won the Nobel Peace Prize. He didn't, and we know why, because, you know, because Nobel Peace Prizes only go, go to leftists. Uh, but what he did to rebuild it into a peaceful, uh, democratic, free market society, to, to rebuild what was, a, what was a just essentially a destroyed country, was not only kind, but it was also brilliant. No, no doubt. I, I, the lasting and great achievement of the post-World War II construct, yes. he deserves lots of credit for. Uh, and of course, the world benefits from it today. Here we are, 2022, yes. 75 plus years later. Um, the epilogue, the end of your book, Craig, you know, we have Truman as president. Right. And you, you write about him throughout the book, uh, a vice president who was not in the center of decision-making by any stretch under no. FDR. No. Someone, someone clearly, as others have written, uh, familiar with Washington, the social scene as you, as you capture some of that as well. Right. 
but then comes in and, and sees, sees it for himself and makes these, uh, huge decisions, uh, in terms of how, what, you know, atomic bomb in, in Japan, uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And then of course, also coming to a real sense of who Stalin was and was not. And you have this great yeah, quote. Yes, in Yalta. Yes. At Yalta. And this Potsdam, great quote, Potsdam, I mean. The Potsdam conference and then and, and concludes after meeting with Stalin that um, he's cured him of any, any, any thought that he could uh, work with the Russians. Talk about Truman and this last part of 1945, because as much as it was about FDR's death, the birth of Truman, the statesman, perhaps is... Equally significant, Craig. Yeah, he was uh, just a hack politician out of Missouri who was uh, elected with uh, under suspicious circumstances by the Pendergast machine there, the Pendergast political machine. Uh, he was not, he was thought of as kind of a lightweight uh, until he headed the uh, war, uh, war uh, commission investigating uh, corruption and crime in war in war the war department contracting and he gained some stature uh with that gave some notoriety and it just it, it, in 1944 when he went on the ticket it was it was uh, uh fdr had to get rid of henry wallace henry wallace had become an embarrassment right. and he was way too left wing and he needed somebody who would balance the ticket and Truman, it was thought of at the time, was more slightly more conservative than than FDR. So he would balance the ticket, uh, and so he of course won. Uh, but he was completely in the dark. He was never uh, had never had any private meetings with FDR. Was never consulted. Was never an advisor. You know, today vice presidents are routinely used for their advice by the president, and and really. That's probably started with uh, uh, Jimmy Carter and Walter Mondale, and then continued with Reagan and Bush and and so forth. But prior uh, is that uh, is that uh, is that um, uh, kind of um, Wilson's vice president, uh, Thomas Evans, uh, had to wait uh, two years to get an appointment, a private appointment with with. Uh, with yeah, they Wilson. spend all their time in the Senate. I mean, that's what you write. You know, Truman yeah, was in the right. Senate. Yeah, when when right. he found out FDR passed away. Yeah, that's right. That's right. He, he was a poker player. He was a drinker. Uh, he liked, you know, uh, hobnobbing with the boys and with lobbyists and things like that. But he was not considered to be a great world statesman. I would, I would, if you ask my estimation, uh, I would, I would say that four, our four greatest presidents are uh, George Washington, Abraham Lincoln, Franklin Roosevelt, and Ronald Reagan, though, because they freed or saved many, many people. Uh, but, but Truman would be right in the second tier of, of somewhat, almost great presidents. He would be there with, uh, uh, like, for instance, uh, I don't know, uh, maybe Eisenhower, uh, uh, maybe uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, you know. Well, certainly in terms of where you, your book ends, recognition of what the Stalin-Soviet threat was. Right. Um, certainly Churchill was someone who continued to hope oh, absolutely. that there could be sure. reconciliation in a way that Truman was quite clear. We had Point a new problem Iron Curtain. and that, and that it took Churchill a little bit of time. And so Truman, Truman came around, was very clear. And then, and then decision, what was required to end the war. Um, yes. 
with here, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. He how, and those those are consequential moments. I mean, I, I always thought Truman Truman never regretted his decisions to drop the bomb, but I wish he had at least given uh, Tojo a, a chance and 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 drop the first bomb on uh, in Tokyo Bay. Uh, so he could see the massive, the awesome power of the of the atomic bomb, and give him a chance to possibly surrender with with the, with the less loss of human of, of civilian life uh, than happened because of uh, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Uh, before we leave uh, April 1945, the hinge of history. You obviously growing up around. Veterans of the Second World War, you were reflecting about time with your your grandparents and people sharing their experiences. What was something you learned by going through all these sources, the secondary sources, the primary sources, trying to experience this as an American was experiencing the world in April of 1945 and the months prior? What kind of stood out to you as something that you didn't appreciate going into the book, but now you kind of see it in, in a new way? Oh. How altruistic America was, can be, uh, and we were during uh, World War II. We, we, we were, there was a clear cut. We were the good guys. They were the bad guys. There was no moral ambiguity. You know, like in Vietnam, there was moral ambiguity, some would, some would say, uh, is that it was the, 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 the um, I'm trying to think, Roger, um, I, I guess is that just that simple of an answer. And how America radically changed, you know, whereas we were 100% isolationists before World War II, we were 100% internationalists after World War II, which led to the, the development of the United Nations and the Marshall Plan. Uh, and uh, there was a Republican congressman who was drunk on internationalism who wanted, wanted a, a, a press in the United States to print books school books for all the children of the world, forgetting about local custom, local economics, local politics, local culture. And the same school book would be read by uh, children in America as were read in, in, in Saudi Arabia, which is, of course, nonsense. It didn't go anyplace. But it tells you about how far we were tilting toward internationalism, including, you know, silly stuff. So does it surprise you now? Or what's your perspective? Because of in the years since World War II, the construct that was built by Truman and the presidents and the Congresses after, you know, that world order, um, which was to the benefit of the United States, it was built on our system, free market economics, political right. freedom. Right. Of course, that's under assault today, Craig, as we're yes, having this is. discussion about April 1945. We're in the cusp of April 2022. And right. Russia has in invaded Ukraine, right. it's naked aggression, targeting civilians, analysts. You don't have to be a sophisticated intellectual can see that uh, the construct that was created in Europe after the Second World War is under assault. Yes. What's your take on that as a historian, Craig? Uh, is that uh, Santiana was right is that uh, those who fail to study history are doomed to repeat it. But also the Twain was right, is that history doesn't repeat itself, but it does often shadow itself. I'm paraphrasing here. 
but and that's why it's important to study history uh, is that because of, for a lot of reasons, including that it's just fun, uh, is that but 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 we see uh, you know the sick man of Europe. You know we used to talk about the sick man of Europe, and it used to be Germany or France or another you know other countries like that, especially in the uh, in the eighteen in the nineteenth uh, century. Uh, it, so now the sick man of Europe right now apparently is is Ukraine because of Russian aggression. And, I, you know, the, 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 I've been asked several times about the similarities, and obviously uh, Putin stripping out portions of Ukraine are reminiscent of Hitler stripping out portions of Czechoslovakia because he said they were more Germanic than in nature than they were uh, Czech in nature. Um, and also American public opinion that you no president can can lead us into war without unified public opinion, and we were ambivalent before September seventh. And it, from looking at the polling data, it seems like we're ambivalent now. Not about aiding them with humanitarian aid, but certainly about sending in U.S. troops. So those are those are those are two similarities. Yeah. What what about something that you were just commenting on? The mindset of isolationism, which really was almost bipartisan, it was stronger in, in, nice. in Republican uh, camps pre World War II, pre Pearl Harbor, and then the end of the war, 1945, and you were just giving us these examples of you know robust internationalism. Today, the United States, and within the Democratic Party and Republican Party, there are strong neo isolationist voices. Yes. Uh, are you worried that uh, the balance is tilting towards the neo-isolationists? No. Or no. Oh, go ahead. No, go ahead, Roger. I interrupt you. Please finish. No, I was going to say that. Are you worried about that balance tilting, or is is the rise of autocrats like Putin and, and Xi in China really the kind of uh, almost prudent reminder and uh, um, that this is not uh, we'll, neo-isolation? We'll never go back. We'll never go back to being. All isolationists. We might tilt a little bit isolationist, as, and then other years tilt a little more internationalist. But I think at the the hyperspeed flow of information, and the movement of people between countries prevents us from becoming isolationists again. We're not homogeneous the way we were, you know, in 1941. In 1941, we all read same newspaper, listened to the same radio. Ate the same breakfast cereal. We were we were we were pretty much a a, a white Anglo-Saxon uh, Protestant country uh, in 1941. We're much more diverse now than we were then. So that that makes us more internationalist. Is that? But but in the 1930s, is that both parties were were isolationists. One of the biggest leaders of the isolationist movement was Democratic Senator Burton K. Wheeler of Montana who was a, a thorn in the side of the FBR administration, but he was a Democrat, and he was very isolationist. He accused uh, FBR of wanting to, you know, uh, dig trenches for American GIs to die in the war. You know, I'm no, you read about Senator Wheeler, Wheeler throughout. Um, let's wrap yeah. this up. Great conversation with Craig Shirley, Reagan historian, author of April 1945, The Hinge of History, fascinating book. I got to ask you this uh, for the Reaganism podcast. Here you are, you're studying World War II, studying this, this pivotal moment towards the end of the war. Of course, you wrote 
a book to December 1941. So you spent a lot of time looking at FDR. How has your work on FDR and studying FDR shaped in any way you're thinking about Reagan? Of course, we referenced before how Reagan was a huge supporter and uh, voted yes. for FDR four times. But did it give you an additional perspective or change your perspective of all, uh, given all the work you've done on Ronald Reagan? Uh, yes, it, it does, Roger, is that, you know, we all know Reagan was the eternal optimist and he had a wellspring of optimism uh, springing up inside him. And I think part of it he got from from Franklin Roosevelt. Franklin Roosevelt, you know, the, the New Deal was a failure. And, and FDR admitted it was a failure. And the proof was in the pudding. Unemployment in 1939 was the same as it had been in 1932. Uh, but he gave the American people hope. And I think that's the most important uh, residue of the New Deal was he gave the American people hope. And I think Reagan took that to heart. Uh, he didn't subscribe to FDR's economics or government policies, but he did subscribe to his optimism, which is very, very important, I think, for the American people. You know, because an optimistic people are productive people. Uh, and a productive people create things like armaments, to arm indigenous countries or a strong economy to fight the Soviet Union is that, uh, and, and so he got that from, uh, he got that from Franklin Roosevelt. Greg Shirley, thank you so much for coming back on the show. Congratulations on all your success. April, thank 1945, you. the hinge of history. Thank you, Roger, very, very much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.